This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So, I have never worn that t-shirt up there on the screen. I never intend to wear that t-shirt unless someone buys it for me, but I still, I, I promise, I can't promise you I'd wear it. There's also a women's version as well. Real women love Jesus, children love Jesus, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, I don't know what it is about that t-shirt, but I just, I don't know. I just don't want to wear it. But the sentiment, the statement on the t-shirt is absolutely true and right and good. Because one way to define a Christian is a follower of Jesus is someone that loves Jesus and loves him so much that you want to do what he says and you want to come under his lordship. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the great Shema from the Jewish people that are uh, Jewish believing in Jesus, friends would say is about Jesus. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we say, Jesus is my Lord and my God. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So that makes sense. Or we heard in our first scripture reading from the book of 1 Peter, where Peter says, though you do not now see him, or though you have not seen him, you love him. And remember, this, this was not written by a man who was an intellectual or a poet or an artist. This was a guy who ran a small family business and who cleaned and gutted fish for a living. He said, I love Jesus. I know, I'm pretty sure, Peter would have worn the t-shirt. In the fourth century, there was a Christian leader named Augustine in North Africa, a North African leader, who said in a book that he wrote called his Confessions, he said, my weight is my love. And my weight, that love, that weight will carry me. It will carry me towards the object of my love. Whatever I love, that's where, my, that's where my weight will lead me. And so he prayed, God, may my weight be towards you. So what all of these writers are getting at is that there is a, a, a secret, uh, there is a, a, a essence, there is a heartbeat to the whole Christian life. And it's simply this. Well, let me put it this way. I could tell you all of the things you're supposed to do as a Christian. I could say you should feed the hungry. I should say you could care about the poor. You need to pick up your cross daily and follow him. You need to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. You need to be generous with your time and your money and your possessions. You need to order your sexuality to come under the lordship of Jesus. You need to do all of these things, but if love does not drive it, we have become, as the Apostle Paul said, a clanging gong. We become just empty noise. Your love is your weight. So love for Jesus is the beating heart behind it all, or if you want to use a more mechanical image, it's the engine that drives the car of your faith, the bus of your faith. It's what drives it. Now, I, I say all of this by way of introduction because as I was reading this passage, and praying about this passage and meditating on this passage, I just want to tell you that the thing that happened in me as I was reading this, preparing for this sermon, is that simply I just came to love Jesus more through this passage. And I'm going to show you why and how. And maybe the same thing will happen to you. I hope it does. I pray it does. But that will be between you and the Lord. So um, open your Bibles if you so choose, to page 885. 
Um, this great passage at the end of the third gospel, the gospel of Luke, the last chapter, chapter 24, and we read in verse 13 of that chapter that that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. So the two of them were, we know one of them because the text itself identifies him as Cleopas, Cleopas, and we don't know who the other one is. Some scholars think it was maybe his wife. Some think it was maybe a friend. We do know that later in this passage it says they were talking and discussing back and forth, which in the original language has this idea of they're like really going at it, not necessarily arguing, but well, you know, have you ever seen two Jewish people talk about something really intense, or Greek people, or Mediterranean people, or Italians? You got any of those people here, you know? And they're talking, and they're both talking about something. I mean, it's intense, so they're going, going back and forth. And so we know, we know one of them, and we know that they're talking, and we know that they're going to a place called Emmaus. So they're coming from Jerusalem with all this really bad stuff happened where Jesus was crucified and where it all ended just so badly. It was such a debacle. It was such a disaster. It was such a tragedy. It's just so sad. So they're coming from Jerusalem. They're walking to this road, Emmaus. And we know historically that Emmaus is this town, probably a small town. We don't know a lot about it, but we know that that's where they were headed and it was seven miles away. But symbolically, here's what Emmaus is. I would say that all of you all of us have been on the Emmaus Road. We've all been on it. What's it. What do I mean by that? Well, the Emmaus Road is that place of doubt and discouragement. It's the place where you wonder if Jesus is there, but you can't see him, you can't feel him. It's the place where you understand suffering and grief and loss and anguish of living in this fallen world where things just don't work the way, they're, the way we think they should work but not the joy of the resurrection. It's the place where dreams have died. Look with me at verse 21, because this is a very powerful verse. So Cleopas, as he's explaining this to Jesus, but he doesn't know it's Jesus, he says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see those three words there? Those are three of the saddest words in the English language. We had hoped. In other words, we did hope but we don't hope anymore. Our hope is past tense. Our hope is in the rearview mirror. We had hoped that the cancer wouldn't come back. We had hoped that the depression would lift. We had hoped that the marriage could have been saved. We had hoped that, the child, that this child could have made better choices for his or her life. We had hoped that the romantic partner would come along. We had hoped that my life would be better. We had hoped that my pain would end or the cry of the poor, we had hoped that we could live without terror, we could live without violence, we could live without displacement or corruption or slavery or trafficking. Emmaus Road is the place where dreams have died either slowly or quickly. I was reading this um, little memoir by a writer named Joan Didion and uh, called The Year of Magical Thinking in which she writes about grappling with the grief of her husband, John, of nearly 40 years. They were preparing dinner, and he was sitting in a chair, and she looked over, and he was non-responsive, and he died of a massive coronary, right in the chair right before dinner. And, and she's trying to, to deal with the grief in that book, and she says, life changes fast. Life changes in an instant. You sit down for dinner, and life as you know it ends in a heartbeat 
or the absence of a heartbeat. This is Emmaus Road, where we are honest about suffering, but don't see the blazing hope and the joy of the resurrection. And that's what happened to these two disciples. So in verse 15, notice that with me if you're following along. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now what I love about this is that Jesus did not draw near when they had amazing faith, when they had it all figured out. They're baffled, they're confused, and that's when Jesus drew near. And that's the theme of this passage. In verse 16, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they don't know it's Jesus. So it's, and I'm going to say a couple times, this, if you don't see the humor in this story, you're, you're missing the story. Because this is really, it's a funny story. It's really funny. And I, I think I'm going to prove that to you. It's really funny. It's subtle, but it's funny. So they're talking to Jesus. They're talking about Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. And it says that they were prevented is what the text says. So they, that something was preventing them, blocking them. Like, like what was that? Well, it could have been, part of it could have been their grief, um, their, their suffering, their sorrow. That can do it to us when we feel really sad about something. Uh, part of it could have been their, their doubts, their intellectual doubts. That could have been part of it. But the text itself says their biggest problem was a heart problem. Not so much intellectual, although that was there too, but it was a heart problem. So look at verse 25 with me, where Jesus tells them, he says, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So here's your real problem, your deepest problem, besides all those other problems, which are real, your deepest problem is you have a foolish heart. You're fools. And your heart is slow. You are a slow, you're in the really slow people group of faith. And you just, you guys, you're not picking it up quick. And that's your problem. So it's, a, it's the biggest problem is a heart problem. Remember I said that's your, Augustine said that's your weight. That's what's going to carry you or not carry you. So I, I love this again because they're, they're weary, they're discouraged, they're, they're foolish, they have slow hearts. And they're just two people on a, trudging on a road to a small town with dusty, they have dusty feet and they're baffled and they're trying to figure it out. And that's when Jesus intervenes. Not when they get it all together. Not when they have it all figured out. I love that about Jesus. That would make me wear the t-shirt. That alone. Verse 17. Jesus asked them, he says, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And then there's this poignant, poignant little sentence. And, and they stood still, looking sad. So these people that were walking and using their hands and talking, and they're, all of a sudden they're just still. And they're, they looked sad. That's the thing with sadness, isn't it? With grief. You can push it down. You can pretend it's not there. You can gloss it over. You can numb it. You can medicate it. You can drink yourself numb. You can do whatever to numb yourself. But it's like beach balls, trying to hold beach balls underwater in the pool. What happens? They, they keep popping up. 
especially if you got multiple ones. They keep popping up, so the sadness pops up, and they're sad. And in verse 18, our friend Cleo says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I take that as really sarcastic. Like, buddy, have you been living under a rock? You don't get out much, do you? And remember, he's talking to Jesus. Like, you don't, you don't watch the news, you don't read the news, like nothing. You don't follow Twitter, no, you don't know what's going on. How, you, how can you be so in the dark? And then I love Jesus' response. And he said to them, what things? Now that's funny, right? Because he's like, he knows all of it, he lived it. And he's going like, oh, no, oh my goodness. You don't say, like, Jesus, tell me more about him. I'm really interested. Fill me in. And the story comes tumbling out. And I imagine Jesus, while they're telling this story, I imagine he's going, oh, oh, no, no. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. I just imagine that. That's not actually in the text, but it just seems consistent. So, so the whole story starts tumbling out. And about Jesus' life, that he was condemned, that he was crucified, that now it's the third day, and we've heard these strange rumors, and these women followers of Jesus are saying he's risen from the dead, but we don't know whether to believe them or not, and they should have believed them, but they didn't, but we don't know what to believe. And then in verse 25, that's where Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It was all there, guys. It was there. I know it, it wasn't completely easy to figure out, but it was there. The dots could have been connected. I was trying to connect the dots for you while I was alive. Of course, they don't know it's Jesus yet. And then he says in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is Isaiah 53, which if you read, read Isaiah 53, about how the Messiah will suffer, will suffer deeply, but will rise to glory. And so he says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus is saying this whole book, two testaments, 66 books, sewn together into one book, the whole story, 800,000 words nearly in this translation of the Bible, it all points to me. That's like the roads, all the roads and all the twists and turns and all the bad things that happen and all the, the horrible stories and the bloody stories and the glorious stories and all the sinners and all the saints and all the heroes and all the villains, all the roads are leading to me. Now, Jesus would say that again in a couple other places, like, for instance, the Gospel of John, a different author of the New Testament. He would say, Jesus would say something almost exactly the same. He says, you search in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, what kind of religious leader says that? Like, all of our sacred text leads to me, ultimately. Well, why could he say that? Well, if he was God in human flesh, it would make sense. Otherwise, as C.S. Lewis famously said in his trilemma, don't, don't go telling me that Jesus was some kind of nice moral teacher. 
He had some nice moral things to say, but Lewis says he, if he said the things, the, saying the things he said, like the whole Bible points to me, this is my story. It's a story about me. He is either a liar or a lunatic with like a massive ego problem, like massive narcissistic personality disorder, or he's Lord. Which one are you going to choose? Then the, verse 28, there's another comical detail. I find it comical anyway. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, Emmaus, and he acted as if he was going farther, which literally in the original language means he pretended like he was going to go farther. Now, I want to know, like, these guys probably told it. They were eyewitnesses. They probably told it to Luke, who's writing it to us. Like, how did they know he was pretending? Like, so he's like, like Steve is, is Cleopas, and, and he's kind of like, mm, you know, kind of like one foot out the door. Or did he say something? Hey, guys, love to stay. Got to catch up with mom. You know, she's been a little worried these days, so I got to have, I'm going to have dinner with her. I got some friends, they're scared, so I want to go comfort them. I want to, we're going to have a little barbecue on the beach with some fish, and so I'm going to help them catch some fish. What did he do to pretend? I hope you know. Okay, Jesus is playing a practical joke. He's having, he's messing with them. I don't know any other way to read this text. I don't think I'm making that up. You correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think he is. It's a practical joke. And in verse 29, it's they urge him strongly to stay, which, which is a really almost like a, a by force. So they probably like grabbed him, like, stay with us. We want to hang out with you. We, we don't know who you are, but we, you're cool, you know. You're cool. You're smart. You get the Bible, you know. It's like, I, we want to hang out with you. And so in this beautiful verse, they say in verse uh, 29, stay with us for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. I love that. It's just so poetic. Please stay with us. See, here's the thing with Jesus. If my heart is proud, if I'm arrogant, if I'm full of myself, I don't want him around. But if he is beginning to humble my heart, crack open my heart, soften my heart, maybe through the circumstances of my life, maybe through blessings, maybe through hardship. It could be either one. It could be both. If he's beginning to humble me and open my heart, I want him around. I want him to stay with me. I want to stay with him. And so the end of verse 29 says, so he went in to stay with them. I just want to say, the, at the core of the Christian life is not just believing things about Jesus, although that's part of it, not just doing things for Jesus, although that's part of it, but again, that, that heart, that engine is all about staying with Jesus and him staying with us. It's communion. It's what we call Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And then verse 30, this is where it gets really interesting. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. 
And so Jesus, here's the surprise party. You know, you've been to a surprise party, right? It's really fun. Everybody's waiting in a dark room, and the guest of honor comes in, and you all stand up and shout, surprise, and the guest of honor goes, ah, you know, surprise, and that's, it's really fun, right? So this is a reverse surprise party. Jesus walks into the room, and he goes, surprise, the guest of honor. I know you didn't know it was me, but I'm here. I love that. Again, I think that's pretty fun. So verse 30, it says he took blessed and broke and gave it to them. Those four verbs, are ex- took, blessed, broke, and gave, are the f- exactly the same pattern that we find in the Lord's Supper a couple chapters earlier in the Gospel of Luke. It's the pattern of Jesus. It is Eucharistic. It's clearly, I, I don't know how else to read it, but it, that he's being Eucharistic. And remember, now look at verse 31 with me. So remember that their, eye, their eyes were prevented, verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Who opened their eyes? Did they do it themselves? Jesus opened their eyes so that they could recognize them. Jesus even helps us believe in Jesus. Now, there's work for us to do. We cooperate. We go with him. We engage with him. We live with him. We live under his leadership. But he helps us believe in him. So there's that moment when it all makes sense, that twinkling of the eye, and it's the reveal. No one has captured that better artistically than the Italian artist Caravaggio. So in 1601, he painted this painting. That's that very moment where Jesus says, they recognize, well, he doesn't say anything, they recognize him, that he's the one that they've been talking to this whole time, but they didn't know. They've been talking about him and to him, but they didn't know it. Now, I love this painting. I, I don't know if you can see it, but over in the far left, there's a guy in the far left. He's got a, like a torn patch on his elbow. So this is just some ordinary working guy. I love this. And he's standing up from his chair. He's going, I like to think he's going, what? And then the guy on the right is going, no way. Or maybe, hallelujah. I don't know. And then the guy standing there is kind of going, hmm. I'm not sure about this. I don't know what's happening. And then Jesus is going, just very calmly, I told you, here I am. I told you I was coming back from the dead, so you shouldn't believe me. So, or something like that. I love it. Now, I love, so I um, talked to Julia Damien, who's my administrative assistant, who's never been quoted. She's worked with me for four years. She's never been quoted in one of my sermons. So, and I quote all kinds of people. So I asked her, I said, she knows a lot about art. So I said, tell me about this picture. So she said a couple things that are really important. So first of all, the way that Caravaggio did the space, like it's, everything's really crammed. And it's like all, and the, and the light, and, and then just the way everything's situated. Is that the artistic word? Um, and Jesus is like central. It's like it's pointing to Jesus. But then the guy on the right, like look at his hand. His hand is like coming out of the frame. It's coming out to you and me. It's kind of like, hey, hey, grab my hand. Grab my hand. I want to bring you into this picture. I want to bring you into this scene. I want to bring you into what I've found in Jesus. It's like, he's like an evangelist. He's like, hey, take my hand. Come on in here. So I, I love all of this. Now, here's the thing that's really moving. The guy that painted this, Caravaggio, I, I don't know a lot about his life, but I know enough to know he was not a good guy. He was a bad dude. So he had a lot of hardships as a child, um, but he also had a vast criminal record. 
that we still have access to. So in 1605, four years after he painted this, he stabbed a guy that he, in a bar that he thought was flirting with his girlfriend. Um, then he got out of jail, and then he was eating dinner, and the waiter served him a hot plate of food. And I don't know, he didn't like the food or something, so he took the plate of food and he threw it in the waiter's face, for which he also went to jail. And then later, after a heavy night of drinking, he murdered a police officer. I mean, there's more. I could tell you more, but you get enough to know this is a bad guy. So I'm wondering, what did Caravaggio see in this Bible passage? What did he see in this scene? What did he hope for? What did he believe despite his badness? Well, we don't know for sure what he believed, but he, I got to believe he saw something. He saw Jesus in light of his life in this text, that here's a sinful man who's left some wreckage in his life, who's made some bad choices, who nevertheless is invited in to Jesus, into his life. What St. Paul says is that God justifies the ungodly. God takes sinful people and he turns them into believers. He takes closed eyes and he opens them. He takes cold hearts and he lights them on fire. As it says in verse 32 there, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? He can take the coldest heart and make it warm again. I cannot help but believe that Caravaggio saw that in this text because it's there. So the story ends with this. The last verse is, they, so they go to the disciples in Jerusalem. They go back to Jerusalem. They tell them what they've seen and heard on the road to Emmaus. And then it ends in verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now again, I can't read that any other way but that it's, it's Eucharistic. It's pointing to the table. The breaking of the bread. So in a few minutes, Father Steve will say, as he begins the Eucharistic prayer, lift up your hearts. And then you will shout back, we lift them to the Lord. And I would say, do that. Take your heart, whether it's cold or dead or angry or asleep or hard or slow or selfish, and lift it up to the Lord and say, Lord, here's my heart. Here's the way it is. Take my heart and transform it. Make it alive. Put that burning heart within me. Put that new heart within me that the prophets all talked about, that God will give a new heart. He will put a new heart within you. Put that new heart within me, me Lord Jesus, for this week, for the rest of my life. So I would say, for all of the reasons I've talked about, all of the things in this text, the inestimable benefits, as Father Steve prayed, of Jesus our Lord. I'm with the fisherman guy. I love Jesus. And though I've not seen him, I believe in him, 
and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.